You're listening to the podcast of Shady Grove Presbyterian Church. The purpose of this podcast is to help you grow in your walk with Christ and apply his word to your life. My name is Ben Hine, and I am one of the pastors here at Shady Grove. I'm also joined by three other guests this morning. We have Senior Pastor Charlie Bale, Mike Nola, and Becca Locos here in the studio uh, 11A this morning. And we're glad that you all are with us this morning. Good morning. How's everybody? Uh, we are going to jump into Mark chapter 10 today, uh, but before we do that, we have our warm-up round question, as always. Uh, speaking of which, I was just thinking about this. You know what I think I really want for Christmas is one of those um, like sound effect boards where you can pre-program it. So when I say that we're going to have a warm-up round, like I can press a button and it'll go ding, ding, you know, something like that. I want sound effects to add. Everybody uh, wants one of those. I, I think so. Yeah. You know, so uh, anyways, if you guys want to know what um, I want for Christmas, uh, it's it's a sound effect board. So uh, I think it would really improve our podcast. I don't know about you guys, but uh, OK, let's uh, do our warm up round question here. And that is uh, a couple weeks ago uh, uh, when I preached a message um, from the Matthew series, I had mentioned that I think it's good for Christians kind of at all times, in addition to their Bible reading, to have kind of one book that they're steadily working through maybe areas of the Christian life that they're trying to grow in their understanding in or grow in their ability to think as a Christian about certain issues. And so kind of just one book kind of helping them move along and grow as a Christian, um, which again, is not a rule, but I think it's a good piece of wisdom uh, for us to be grown in that way. And so I know everyone here has at least officially through seminary studies had to read a lot of books, uh, but also just uh, wanting to grow as a Christian, having other books that they've read as well. And so I uh, would we'll just be curious to hear from each of you uh, about a Christian book, not a commentary, but a, a book that you think every Christian must read because of the way it impacted you. Uh, so what's one book that you think every Christian must read and why? And if you want to speak to maybe how that book impacted you, uh, that would be great. So I'm going to start with Charlie okay. and we'll go around. All right. Um, I'm going to recommend a sermon and a book if that's okay. Because I really wanted to say something by C.S. Lewis, but if you've never read this sermon, The Weight of Glory, that's my favorite sermon. And I've read it numerous times and just find it full of hope and uh, moves the imagination and springs faith forward into how great it's going to be. Um, so that I recommend that, The Weight of Glory. <clears throat> as far as a book, I actually think Ken Sandy's book, The Peacemaker, was a very helpful book for me, and I just find that I'm giving that book out a lot and recommending it. And I think that we all kind of stink at conflict and how to deal with conflict. And the book is all about conflict resolution and what to do when things are messy in relationships, which happens quite a bit. And um, so I just find it immensely useful and uh, recommend it. Thanks, Charlie. That would probably be a good book to revisit at some point. Um, agree. So, all right, Mike, how about you? Well, I'm going to give you a complicated answer, Ben, because oh boy. <laughs> I don't know any single book that fits that bill for me. Mm -hmm. But there have been a number of books that have changed my mind about a theological topic. And I'm thinking about, in terms of the gospel formation, B.H. Streeter's The Four Gospels. Uh, in terms of understanding inaugurated eschatology, that would be Oscar Kuhlman's Christ in Time. And uh, we're thinking about uh, looking forward to A Course in Revelation and uh, William Hendrickson mm -hmm. 
has has changed my mind completely about how I look at Revelation. Hmm. But I'll go on to say, there's only one book I've ever read three times besides the Bible, and that is uh, David Martin Lloyd Jones's uh, Preachers Preaching and Preachers. Hmm. Uh, and, I, and I still go back to it um, mm. for little snippets time to time. Uh, that's had a real profound impact on me. And I would recommend it for anybody who's either preaching, uh, interested in preaching, or wants to improve their preaching. Um, and the, the, if I can have a second one, yeah. <laughs> I'm also, I, I love biography. And I think one of the best uh, biographies I've ever read uh, is uh, Arnold Dallimore's uh, George Whitfield. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a two-volume set. And not only is there great information there, but Dalmore is um, is a wonderful writer. I mean, mm. w- when I started reading this book, I couldn't put it down mm. in its two volumes. So that I went sleepless for a while with that yeah. one. There is also one summary that's one volume. Oh, there's been trimmed down and it's really good, too. And his one on Spurgeon is excellent as well. Mm. I like I like Dalmore. Yeah. Thanks, Mike. <clears throat> Becca, how about you? Well, I have trouble with questions where you pick one, (laughs) just like asking a favorite that doesn't go well. But um, and I think some of it would always depend on who I'm talking to. But one that's come up a lot in the last few years has just been Side by Side by Ed Welsh. Mm -hmm. And it's just about what it means to do life together, to be a good friend. And it just it gets really practical. So Mm -hmm. it's simple, but it's it makes. Yeah, it just oh, you can say this to someone. Yeah. So it just, I think it's a great one for anybody mm-hmm. and thinking through what it actually means to um, do life together. Yeah. So. That's a book that I've wanted to read for a while and just kind of like fell you know, to the side. But um, I'm going to take your recommendation seriously. It might okay. go back and I think we have some still at the book table here, maybe. Probably. Um, so I'm going to have to read that. I love Ed Welch. Uh, for me, uh, a book that I think whenever I've been asked a question like this, it's always, I think I've pretty much always given the same answer. And that's because there's one book that uh, stands out to me that uh, I think it's a great book, but I also read it at a certain time in my life where um, like God was kind of taking me, uh, really helping me um, begin to dive deep into theology and understand like a reform view of scripture and all of that. Uh, and that was um, John Murray's Redemption Accomplished and Applied. Uh, which is deals with uh, sort of this idea of historia salutis and ordo salutis. So what did Christ accomplish? And then what are the benefits uh, of salvation and apply to believers? And for me, it just came, um, I think I read it my second year of seminary, which I was still going part-time at the time. So it was, you know, I'd only taken maybe 10 credits my first year. So I didn't really have like a reform view on scripture yet. I'd only been a Christian for three years you know, it was my first systematic theology class and the professor assigned this book. And all of a sudden, like a whole bunch of light bulbs started going off where I no longer, you know, I no longer saw like justification and sanctification so opposed to each other, but, you know, all part of this um, being applied to us in Christ as like all the benefits of salvation. I It was worth the book, first book I really read learning about um, our spiritual adoption in Christ and all these things. And it just like, so many light bulbs went off and I think it really uh, fired up my engine to move forward in my study of theology. And so I would just recommend that book. If you haven't really read uh, much systematic theology or you're just um, uh, trying to get your hands on what sort of a big overview of scripture, uh, I would really uh, encourage you to read 
John Murray's Redemption Accomplished and Applied. I think a new um, version came out recently that Carl Truman maybe wrote an introduction to. Um, but uh, it's a really, really solid book. That is a great book. Yeah. I'm reading it now for the first time. What do you think? It's, it's good. Yeah. yeah. And I we've had a lot of good conversations that have come out yeah. of it. It's, I mean, it's very theological, but I think it's very readable and yeah. like yeah, compared to the other ones I'm reading that are about the same thing. I like whenever yeah. I have to read that one, I'm like, oh, this is good. Murray, Murray's a good author. Yeah. Murray's a good author. So uh, anyways, well, thank you all for sharing some of your favorites. And I hope um, you know, maybe that sparked something for one of our listeners uh, to, to go pick up a book that they might want to read. So, all right, well, let's get going into Mark chapter 10. I think this is a great chapter where we really start to see some, well, we've been seeing some themes of discipleship popping up, but we see a whole lot more, uh, um, themes of discipleship here. So we're going to kick off with, um, Jesus encountering the Pharisees on teachings on marriage and, uh, wish we could spend a whole podcast on just that section, but we don't have time for that. So we're gonna talk a little bit about that. And then he brings in the children and then there's uh this uh you know what does it mean to enter into the kingdom and what's the role of wealth there what's the messiah's role um what you know what is personal significance and um you know what does it mean to be great in the kingdom of god and you know just really some um key uh passages here and then we of course have this great uh towards the end of the chapter mark 10 45 this great line that jesus says about you know, Son of Man came uh, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So that's, this is a great chapter for us to dig into. And so let's go ahead and jump in and look at this first section here, verses 1 to 12. Jesus is, um, gets into this debate with the Pharisees on marriage. And what I think, this is something else I was just telling everybody before the podcast started, that just some new things are jumping out to me in Mark. Never really jumped out to me um, that in most of, many of these um encounters that Jesus has with the Pharisees, we don't always hear what the teaching is that sparked the debate. We just know that he was teaching. And so for Mark, like the center of the, the center is not on what he was teaching, but the debate he gets into with the Pharisees, right? And we see that here. Like he says, it says he was teaching, but doesn't really say what. And now all of a sudden the Pharisees are here, uh, right? Getting into a debate with him on marriage. So what do we learn here um, in Jesus's response to the Pharisees about marriage. Mike, let's kick it off with you. <clears throat> well, he uh, he affirms the things that uh, we always hear in the marriage ceremony that comes out of the uh, Episcopal, book of, Episcopal Book of Common Prayer, and that is marriage was ordained by God, uh, you know, starting back with Adam and Eve, and that uh, the intention from the beginning was that uh, marriage should be uh, a male and a female because they are, that's how God created them to be. And uh, Moses did grant uh, that there that there could be a reason for divorce, but uh, it was the exception to the rule. So he, you know, he gives his blessing to uh, the whole concept of marriage itself. Yeah, that's good, uh, Charlie. Why does why does Jesus go back to Moses in his response to the Pharisees? Um, <laughs> I think he's just taking them back to the beginning and that you guys are the ones who've changed things over time, mm -hmm. but this is what God has initially ordained that a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. Two shall become one flesh. And in a summary statement, 
is what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And mm-hmm. so what what we see is that <clears throat> I like to talk about this as far as the covenant that's being made in marriage, is that God is not a passive participant. It's what God has joined together. And the imagery is is a farmer yoking two oxen together to plow. The, the oxens don't tie themselves together. Someone has to do that for them. And that's a calendar where I'm getting that idea. But <clears throat> so God's the one who's bringing people together and they make these vows for life. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, you know, discovered some pretty interesting just historical stuff here. And so one of the commentators I was reading um, was looking at uh, the Mishnah. Uh, he actually brings up the Mishnah a lot in this uh, chapter. And it just, this interesting quotation, you know, really sad um, quotation from the Mishnah, which uh, says this, um, the school of Hillel says that a man may divorce her even if she spoiled a dish for him, mm-hmm. for it is written because he hath found out in her indecency in anything. And then another uh, another rabbi said, Rabbi Akiba says, even if he found another fairer than she, for it is written, and it shall be if she find no favor in his eyes, he may di- he may divorce her. And so there was kind of this um, culture of a man could divorce his wife for any reason, which is what uh, you see in the parallel in Matthew. Uh, Matthew expands the question that the Pharisees ask. Uh, so they ask, like, um, can a man divorce his wife for any reason, or is for uh, yeah. you know for any yeah. and every reason? Is the Matthew quote? And so you know it's probably right for us to see that behind this question and mark like is it appropriate to divorce for any and every reason and so of course um you know the pharisees seem to be maybe pretty lax on this or they want jesus to affirm maybe being lax in this or they were obviously looking at the very like completely wrong they were looking at the completely wrong thing when they were looking thinking about marriage they were looking at divorce and what's permissible for divorce and not looking at what marriage is it's really chauvinistic too it's so male centric and how would you like to live under that becca being on an endless audition for marriage (laughs) while you're in marriage and you can you can lose this at any time one bad meal and you're done yeah and notice the question doesn't say can a woman divorce her husband right that, that doesn't come into the thinking here at all right I think one of the other things that uh, the Pharisees are trying to do is drive a wedge between Jesus and Moses. And then, you know, their, their conclusion would be, aha, mm-hmm. if, we, if we have a difference, we're going with Moses and that puts you on the outside. Yeah. But, you mm-hmm. know, from a Christian perspective, if you see Jesus as the second person of the Trinity present at creation, in fact, the agent through whom creation comes, well, he was there right. <laughs> when uh, when yeah. God... Um, instituted marriage to begin with. Uh, but um, the other thing is, when, when, you, when you're reading through here, one of the things that, uh, that I noticed that I hadn't seen before was that when Jesus gives his reason, he says, uh, Moses gave you, a, gave you divorce because of the hardness of mm-hmm. your hearts. Mm-hmm. And he's not talking about what happened you know, a couple of thousand years ago. He's putting these very people on the spot who were, who were trying to condemn him. Yeah. That's good. Becca, you have anything to add to this? Maybe even thinking about um, what does this teach us about being a disciple in marriage? 
right? I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but what is it? How does this? What does this tell us about following Jesus in marriage? You know, what do you think? Um. Well, I'll try to make it to your question. Yeah. Um, I was just reading it for me. It was a reminder, like Charlie was kind of pointing out, that it's God designed. Um, that He's the one who creates this union. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that points to the sacredness of it. Um, the fact that divorce, the breaking of it, why that is such a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and such a pain but then you you got to that hard-heartedness and i guess that's where i would see the connection um to growing um in discipleship in this call of marriage of um yeah you know in a way discipleship is a continual softening of your heart and Mm -hmm. so this union that brings two people together is that's not easy that's not natural and it's only through god that that can happen and it's going to be a continual reminder um, yeah. of the need to soften your heart. Yeah, um, yeah, that's good. Uh, I've mentioned before that I've been reading the one of the commentaries I've been reading is the James Edward uh, pillar. And I just think it that's honestly, I feel like that commentary, uh, you could clean it up a little bit and just preach it. <laughs> it's, you know, it's just this perfect blend of, um, I've read few commentaries that I just feel like are this perfect blend of exegesis and exposition. And so he's just very quotable at times. And he had this line that I think is really good. He said, um, you do not learn to fly an airplane by following the instructions from making a crash landing. You will not be successful in war if you only train by the rules for retreat. The same is true for marriage. The exceptional measures necessary when a marriage fails are of no help in discovering the meaning and intention of marriage. Jesus endeavors to recover God's will for marriage, not to argue about possible exceptions to it. I thought that was just a really good quote. So they come wanting to argue exceptions, and he's just like, you are so far off from what God intended this to be. I'm taking this back to what marriage is all about. Um, and so I think that's what we see uh, here in this in this passage. And so this passage definitely plays into some of the other texts um, the parallel passages in, in Matthew and then, you know, uh, Paul has a text in first Corinthians about what's permissible for divorce. That's certainly, you know, this is one of our key passages here for that, but that's not Jesus's primary intention here, right? It's to recover, um, God's will for marriage and going back to the beginning here. So, um, well, let's move forward to verses 13 to 16. Um, Jesus sets forth, the, the children come to him and he sets forth children as examples of the basic attitude that everyone must face before they enter into the kingdom. Uh, so in verse 24, uh, it, it goes on after, after the children come to him. Uh, in verse 24, he's talking to his disciples as the rich man walks away. And Jesus will once again speak of uh, children uh, and entering the kingdom of God, right? The, the, this rich man had come and he walks away sad. Uh, and so Mark is kind of setting up this contrast of uh, being, you know, sort of having an empty handed reception of the kingdom of God, like children uh, on the one hand, and then the attitude of the rich man and the disciples on the other hand, uh, who are sad when they <laughs> realize it means like coming with nothing into the kingdom, right? And so we see this deliberate contrast here. So what do you all think, you know, in verse 15, Jesus says, re- talks about receiving the kingdom uh, of God like a child. What does that, what does that mean to receive the kingdom of God like a child? So we'll start back here again with Becca. What do you think? Um, 
I think that it means that you come eagerly just because you know that your love, that the person wants to give you a gift. Um, and so you just come as yourself and you yeah. can kind of run up all excited um, as compared to right the rich young ruler. Um, is that who? Yeah. Or the, yeah. Um, he comes because he thinks he has something to offer. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a vast difference of coming with something to give versus coming because, you know, somebody wants to give you something. Yeah. Mike. Children are innocent <clears throat> and uh, and they're dependent on their parents for their sustenance and probably don't give much thought to it. Uh, in fact, I'm very sure they don't <laughs> being a father. Uh, <laughs> and the, the other thing is that they, um, because they have a dependence on their parents for their you know, physical needs, they don't have um, a great understanding of the value of material possessions. If, if you offered them a candy bar or a brand new sports car, they'd probably go with a candy bar because, yeah. you know, and, and if you said, what, what's the dollar value of these things, they wouldn't have a clue. Yeah. And so, you know, wealth in a situation like that would just cloud the issue. Yeah. And I think that's what hap- what's happening with the, the rich young ruler, you know, he, he's, he's not dependent. He's absolutely independent. That's how he got his wealth. And, uh, and he, and he places all of his value there. And, uh, if it's taken away, then the value is gone. Right. So, uh, yeah. So in, in those regards, I, I think, you know, he's very much not like a child, but needs to be to enter the kingdom. Yeah. It's, you know, it seems like, you know, if you can kind of paraphrase, these children are blessed being commended because of what they lack. Whereas with the, the rich young man is being rebuked because he can't, he can't see that he lacks everything. He has everything, but lacks everything. Right. Because, and I, and I, I just, you know, Jesus isn't against wealth, right? We know that he's not against wealth and there are people with wealth who finance his ministry and who, you know, all of these things, and, and we see, you know, bigger passages in Scripture on this. But Jesus is pretty clear that wealth can be a real obstacle. Uh, that wealth, possessions, these things can be a real obstacle because we are. It's difficult to see our need when we're comfortable, right? When we're making it, when uh, we're self-sufficient. And so, I just, you know, passages like this ought to give us real pause, right? When we're thinking about what does this mean. For me, not being against wealth per se, but um, I think we could plug and play any particular sin here, which is really scary. So when he says he looks at him, he loved him and said, you lack one thing. Well, for him, it was he was covetous Mm -hmm. and he and he held on to his possessions. But for someone else, maybe the issue is lust and you lack one thing. And it would be go and put this sin to death and come follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven. Or, you know, it could be pride. You know, you lack one thing. You're not humble. So go and die to your to yourself and you'll have treasure in heaven. To another, it's bitter. You're just bitter. You can't forgive and you lack one thing. Go foot, get right with your brother and then come follow me. Like this is like we can't put any stipulations of I love you but there but I won't do this mm-hmm. I love you God but this far and no further and it's Jesus invades the totality of our being and 
he wants all of us and he will he will get that from us he's relentless and this is a good reminder that i think we tend to look at this very self-righteously like that guy man he didn't he just he didn't get it you know what's wrong with him and the reality is it's speaking really loudly to each of us like more than we realize like what's the one thing that we kind of put the barrier up and say okay god you can you can you know the whole my heart christ home and if you guys remember that that little story years ago that was very popular and it's you know it's this picture of jesus is coming into the home and and he doesn't want jesus to go into the closet Mm -hmm. and so jesus starts to leave he's like what do you mean he's like well if i'm gonna come in i'm i'm to have total reign over the house and over every room of the house and you can't leave compartmentalized areas say okay this far but no further he wants the whole thing mm-hmm. at the end of this episode <clears throat> the young man walks away um but at the beginning we learned that jesus loved him right and when it, of course <clears throat> jesus has multiple encounters with the pharisees but we never see that kind of terminology right uh, but here I think it gives us some insight into Jesus in spite of the fact that he knew that this uh, man was going to have a strong priority for his wealth. Nevertheless, when the man came with an innocent with, with a with a question for him, I don't know how innocent it was, but when he came with a question, Jesus first reaction was to love the man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to bring that's verse 21, by the way, I, I was going to bring that out just um, you know, to, to Charlie's comment about how we can look at this man kind of self-righteously. But that's not how Jesus viewed him, right? Jesus did not view him uh, the same way he saw, Mike, like you said, Pharisees or someone else who was opposed to him. But he looked on him with love and and compassion. And so it seems like, at least initially, the man's questioning is genuine. Uh, perhaps, you know, kind of innocent like a child, right? He's asking real genuine questions. Um, and he comes close, but as far as we know, doesn't actually come in uh, to the kingdom. Um so what, I mean, you know, Charlie, I, I agree with you that on the one hand you could, uh, you, you could plug and play any sin here, but it does seem like in the gospels, like one of the things that Jesus runs into is this idea of wealth. Like, I think that's kind of the, what's going on with, um, the Lazarus, Lazarus parable, right. Um, who goes to hell and then, you know, he's just was hard of heart towards other people and his wealth and in his comfort, um. Uh, of course, then you have the other one about the camel going through the eye of a needle and, and all of that. So it seems like this is one that Jesus hits on pretty frequently. So what is it about wealth? Really, we touched on this a little bit, but what is it that makes it such a spiritual snare? And what is Jesus promising in verses 29 to 31 about losing and gaining, right? This idea of losing and gaining. Um, what is he promising there? So Becca, I don't know if you have any thoughts yeah. on that. Well, I think wealth promises or holds the promise of security, of independence, of freedom. And um, you have less need to fear and mm-hmm. all of these things. And so then you don't see, it seems like you almost have more to lose than um, if you were destitute and you just were in need. And so you seem to have like a reason to boast um, mm-hmm. and all of these things. And so, um, yeah, it makes it harder to, it makes you feel like you have more to give up, I think, and less reason because you have less to need. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, also, it's a really short-sighted perspective because, as we all know, you can't take it with you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whatever wealth you have um, belongs to somebody else when you're on your deathbed. <clears throat> yeah. 
Everybody always wonders, am I trading up or trading down with everything in life? So if I get this, am I trading up or am I trading down? Is this an improvement? And so, you know, it's like, I remember years ago, we had a missionary that was here and he was talking about the caste system in India and how, you know, the untouchables and the lower caste are just flocking to Jesus. But at the top is what the Brahmin or whatever, the very top people, they're not, they're not coming to Jesus because they're trading down. Like mm-hmm. this is, you're telling me you're going to equal the playing field. Like Christianity equals all caste systems. And I no longer get to be on top and I don't get to have everybody underneath me. And what do I really gain by coming to Jesus? So the Brahmin aren't coming. And I think in America, the people that have money, like they're self-satisfied, you know, and often, even though they're usually often empty, but they're thinking, am I really trading up to get Jesus? Like that's, that's a trade down, you know, like, so. Yeah. I kind of had that. I'm going to talk about this in our next episode, um, in the warm up round question there, but I'll talk about this more, um, but you know, when I when I graduated college and um, you know working with my friends and this, I graduated from JMU and this whole kind of JMU tribe graduated and went to go work at Freddie Mac where I was working. So I mean, we basically just continued college life. You know, the first two years out of college, the only difference was like we were making good money now and we could you know go downtown and, and stuff like that. But so the theme, the or one of the models that uh, some friends and I had was um, you know you got to get your upgrades. Right. So it was always about what we're going to we're going to get this new big, bigger TV, new car. Right. Like new clothing, like all about, you know, it's all about the upgrades. Right. And then I became a Christian <laughs> and like within, you know, a year and a half, I'd quit my job. I was uh, going to seminary, wasn't making, And like it was just so perplexing. Also, all my friends were still like kind of on this up and up fast track. And here I was like uh, working for free, no money, you know, all this stuff. And um, it was just I could tell like so other than a couple of close friends who had, who were genuinely happy for me because I was happy, kind of the majority of that crowd kind of like wrote me off because I was no longer, I, I don't know, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say like they saw me as a threat or, you know, made them insecure or something, but I was no longer in that same mindset. Yeah. Uh, and it was just so perplexing to go from thinking going up to, um, they saw you as a down. fool. Probably, <laughs> you know, probably. You were- you were no longer on the upwardly mobile track of yeah yeah um you know i i think it's just important that you can be very dogmatic with a passage like this and like condemn people for wealth and that's clearly not you know that's i don't think that's jesus's teaching that's not the bible's teaching when we have uh, certainly many passages that would talk about material possessions and wealth as a sign of god's blessing right but on the other hand you do have warnings like this. And we also know that our God is the champion for the foreigner and the widow and the orphan and the fatherless and the poor, right? And so it's it's all a balance and just keeping in mind what can be a snare to us. And, and he also, I mean, he's saying, I've got the fifth commandment down. I've got the sixth commandment down. I got the seventh commandment down. I got the eighth commandment down. I got the ninth commandment. But conveniently did not mention the 10th commandment when he... <laughs> When, uh, when Jesus left that one out, yeah, and all these I've kept, let's get to the last commandment, yeah. you know? and yeah. that was the one that slayed him. Yeah, I also so another connection I hadn't seen before um, is that uh, Jesus's response that he gives to the disciples. So in verse twenty six, they ask him, uh, "Then who can be saved?" 
right? Because he had said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So the disciples asked him, who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And this is very similar to the response he gave to the father of the epileptic son. Um, and so that kind of stood out to me. And Jesus is pointing out once again that entering into the kingdom of God is not something that is possible by man alone, but it has to be something that God does to bring us into the kingdom uh, and to give us faith. And in this case, he's teaching that that part of that faith is being willing to, I think, release the things of this world, you know, release our hold on the things of this world. Um, for one person, it's nets, right? Giving up their nets. For another person, it's their riches. Um, one person has to give up this, another person has to give up that, but we must be willing to release uh, the things of, of this world. Jesus is offering a greater treasure. Mm-hmm. You will have treasure in right. heaven. He's offering something greater, and this rich man can't see that as a greater treasure. Yeah. The last podcast, <clears throat> we had mentioned kingdom ethics, and Jesus takes this opportunity to remind again that the first will be last and the last will be first, and that in the kingdom of God, Everything is different from the way it is here. Priorities are completely backwards. Mm-hmm. And so if you're if you're going to be a part of the kingdom, you need to be thinking about these things. Right. I think it's also important to realize that those things are promised to come um, and all of that he's promising, but we also do experience some of them now. And mm-hmm. so we have this family of God now. So if your faith separates you from your friends and your family, you do have a family now that has way more reason to be with you and things like that you experience their support um if there is financial need they will come alongside you things like that where we do have tastes of this now it's not just a hope of what's to come yeah yeah we didn't um have this plan in the uh i think that's a good point becca and we didn't have this plan in the order of questions and um but i do think the end of what Jesus says here, this promise that he gives about this family of having a hundredfold mm-hmm. uh, is it's almost like a roundabout exhortation to the church. It's not a direct, it's maybe an indirect as exhortation to the church of, you know, when we're calling people to repentance and faith on our end, upholding our end of the deal means that we're going to be there to support them if they have to give up. You know, if we're calling someone to be celibate on account of their sexuality, we better be prepared to step up and give them the family that they're losing or, you know, whatever the case may be coming around people. Um, so I think there's, that's, it's almost, again, it's indirect, but it's kind of like, this is our end of the the deal as Christians is to be upholding what Jesus has promised to those who are giving up Amen. much. Absolutely. To come into the church. So uh, really convicting. And we could, so we could just spend hours talking mm-hmm. about what that looks like. And maybe we could do that on another episode sometime, but um. We're going to skip over a little bit here. Uh, So in the next uh, pericope, 32 to 34, Jesus gives another passion prediction. Uh, So this is his third passion prediction. Uh, He gave one in uh, the end of chapter 8 and verse 31 or so. Another one in chapter 9, verse 31 or so. Now he gives another one here. And something that we see each time is that Jesus gives a passion prediction and the disciples respond kind of jockeying for position and prestige, right? So... Uh, first, the first time it was Peter, uh, specifically, and then, you know, chapter nine, we had it. And now here in chapter 10, once again, we have them, uh, it, they immediately go into this debate, uh, um, you know, about sitting at the right hand and, and all of that. And so, uh, they, the disciples clearly don't understand like Jesus. And even here he's being, I think the most direct of the three, this is the most direct 
of the passion predictions and the disciples still just don't get it. And so the next thing you know, you see them moving on in verses 35, you know, this request of James and John, um, where they, where they ask him, uh, to, to one sit at, sit at your right hand and one to sit at your left in glory. They want this, they want this down payment, this promise that they're going to be in glory, you know, glorified with him above, by the way, above the rest of the disciples. So this is kind of like the Joseph scenario, right? Of they, they're kind of saying like, let, the disciples are all there. They must be over here. You're like, what? <laughs> um, uh, but uh, yeah, it must've been a real interesting dynamic after this conversation. They're putting their own caste system in place. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. But you know, and another thing I think that's, um, this is just another episode. So, you know, with the children and then we talked about this some last week. So their attitude towards children, their attitude towards the anonymous exorcist who wasn't following them, their attitude towards the Samaritans and Luke calling down fire, this attitude towards sitting at the right hand or the left hand of Christ really shows the disciples um, their attitude towards people, their attitude towards greatness was still much more informed by their culture and society than what Jesus says in this new kingdom, right? It, they still just have this elitist attitude, this very condescending attitude uh, towards others. Uh, and they're very much still programmed by society. And Jesus is kind of un- deprogramming and reprogramming them uh, to see people as he sees them in this new kingdom. And uh, I think we definitely see some of that here. Um, so how does uh, the question in verse 35, and their request to sit at the the right hand and the left hand, how does this show that they still don't understand the meaning of greatness and the cross and of glory? And specifically, if you could maybe speak to, uh, if one of you wants to speak to, what what is the cup and the baptism? What does that have to do uh, with what how Jesus responds? And so maybe, Mike, we'll start with you on that. <clears throat> with the cup and the baptism? Well, um, those, you know, are the... Uh, can be a reference to the two um, ordinances or sacraments that we have in the Christian church. Uh, and those are, you know, signs of the covenant and ways that we participate um, in God's kingdom. Um, but further than that, I, because it just comes on the heels of Jesus talking about the, the prediction of his death and suffering, um, I think it has something to say about the initiation rites or the, the the process that he needs to go through in order mm-hmm. to complete the task that God gave him. Uh, in Luke chapter 13, Jesus talks about, I have a baptism to undergo and how I wish it were already accomplished. He's not talking about his water baptism that happened mm-hmm. early, I mean, very early in the gospel. He's talking about the process that he needs to go through in order to accomplish the goal uh, mm-hmm. That was set uh, back in chapter nine. Uh, you know, when the time for his ascension uh, was near, he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. Yeah, Charlie, you have anything to add to that? No, I think it's really good. I think this idea of cup and baptism, I mean, they all kind of point towards suffering mm-hmm. and and the Via Dolorosa and the way of suffering, and it's ultimately going to lead to his death before his resurrection. And so for for us as disciples, it's a relentless call to take up your cross and to follow me. And and I I think it's another way of asking them, you know, are you are you willing to count the cost of this is what it's going to look like for me? He's going to drink the cup of God's wrath himself. And there's 
you know, and so the baptism, baptism is ultimately to be identified with. Um, and so, you know, are you willing to, to count the cost to be identified mm-hmm. with me? And, you know, this one little phrase that gets jumped over in the last pericope when he makes all these promises of houses, mothers, brothers, mm-hmm. sisters, with persecutions, mm-hmm. it just gets landed in the in the midst there, tucked in that, that, hey, it's going to be better in this life and life to come. But in this life, you might get new friends and all that, but man, it's going to come with persecutions. And he's revisiting that here with, with these guys. And yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I went back and looked up um, some Old Testament context of cup and uh, just, you know, there's long list of examples, but I just picked out a couple from the Psalms. So this idea of cup could signal to signal to prosperity. So in Psalm 16, verse five, uh, you know, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. Right. So it's speaking like of cup positively there. But then if you look at Psalm 11, six, uh, it says, let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Uh, and so, uh, you know, you could again draw out a list, but I think predominantly in the Old Testament, cup had the second connotation of the cup is their suffering related to it. Uh, and you have, you kind of have that when he uh, makes his request of um, the father in the garden, right? If, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me and it seems like that's kind of packed into this idea is this suffering um and the disciples clearly weren't expecting that like they weren't expecting that they were gonna have to participate in suffering and the baptism seems similar the bat the way jesus is using baptism here reminds me of how paul uses it in romans 6 right being baptized into his into his death um seems you know I don't know if you would say uh, that means identifying with or associated with or being grafted into is kind of maybe a connotation there, but it just seems like, you know, Jesus kind of asking, do you, do you think that you can handle what's going to come my way? And he says like, you will, but I don't think you're ready. You know, (laughs) I don't think you know what you're asking uh, because this is what, this is what's coming. And we see that all throughout the gospels and even in first Peter, that whole motif of suffering and then glory. Mm -hmm. And whenever there's a mention of glory, like, in particular, like First Peter, it's always about the suffering that comes first, and then the glory. And even the prophets were predicting the sufferings that were to come, and then the glory. So we see this. There's, we always want the last first. Mm-hmm. Just give me the glory. And they're saying, give me the glory. And he's, whoa, 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 whoa. you know, the Apostles' Creed, you know, goes all the way down the stairs of, you know, you keep going down. He was crucified, died, was buried. I mean. And it keeps going down. And then and then finally, you know, he rose from the dead. Now we're starting to go back up the stairs. You know, he sent into heaven, you know. Mm-hmm. And you got to go down the stairs before you go up the stairs as mm-hmm. followers of Christ. I think yeah. it's amazing that they say that, yes, we're able to do it. Because <laughs> they, they just, I mean, he told them the first will be last and last first. And then he tells them that he's not just going to die, but he's going to be mocked and spit upon and flogged. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's telling them all these things. And then their question is... Oh, can we can we have all this glory and like be, have this power by association with you? And then they say, "Oh yeah, we can we can take that on." And to me, it's just we can so easily say, "Yes, we're up for this," and then we right. have no idea right. what we might be in for. Yeah, but. I think there's some irony there as well. You know, when the uh, 
uh, you know, Jesus is telling them the first will be last. And their, their response is, can we be first? (laughs) (laughs) Really? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, very, man, just thick headed, but so are we so often. Um, so in verse 45, it's just this, man, there's, this is great verse of, uh, for even the son of man. So he's, this is the ending of here, this discourse with James and John. And Jesus says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, Becca, coming back to you, what do we learn here in verse 45 that Jesus had not told us yet about his death? Um, I'm not certain, (laughs) (laughs) but I mean, what stood out to me was that he's telling them that he's giving his life for many. Um, And so he's, he's told them before a few times that he was going to die, but this time it's explicit. It's, it's for you. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I think that's, I think that's exactly right. This is, you know, Jesus has said in his passion predictions that he was going to suffer. He's going to be delivered. Um, But I think this is the first and I'm just thinking, you know, off the top of my head, like, perhaps the most explicit substitutionary words of Jesus, right? Like um, trying to think of John three sixteen, yes, but this, this is, I think more explicit than that about I'm giving it as a ransom for, um, which very much who is, pair? what's that? Who pairs that Greek word there yeah. that means, you know, on your behalf, in yeah. your place, yep. it's very much a substitute. Yeah. Yeah, so I think, you know, for me, this is one of the, if I'm going to want to deal with um, when I'm when I'm sharing the gospel these days, you know, I, I try to stick with, with Jesus as much as possible because people, I don't, I don't have a problem with Jesus, right? And so I want to give them words of Jesus as much as possible. And so when I want to drive home a substitutionary idea, uh, this is a verse that I come back to um, of, you know, Jesus said that he gave his life on your behalf for, you know, Mark 10 45. And we see that here. And then you can take them to John three, whoever believes, you know, will not perish. And, um, this is just like a very key substitutionary idea here. It's pretty humbling too. Are you listening to this? You're like, wait a minute. He's come to liberate the prisoner of war. He's come to redeem the slave. It's this, you know, uh, purchase Mm -hmm. somebody back that isn't in desperate straits. Mm -hmm. And, Guess who's in the desperate straits of the story here? It's like, okay, he's just making it clear. This is what, I mean, I think we're seeing this whole idea that Jesus is the suffering servant in Mark and that he is the one identified as, all these kind of have overtones back to Isaiah 53, that this is the servant that's going to come and liberate his people through his own death. Right. Earlier when when we started this podcast, you were, talking about books that have been influential. One of them that I did not mention <laughs> was uh, Mortar Hooker's book, uh, Son of Man and Mark. And Jesus uses the term son of man here, but understanding it from Daniel, it means the person who comes at the end of the age as judge. Mm-hmm. Uh, yet in this uh, episode, he's trying to explain to them, although they probably have this understanding of what Daniel meant and what the term son of man meant, mm-hmm. Yet, it's not at this moment. At this moment, he's uh, he's coming as the suffering servant that Isaiah had mm-hmm. predicted. Uh, and so, you know, while they're expecting the kingdom of God to, to come breaking in in a military sense, mm-hmm. 
he's giving them a whole different perspective and understanding, trying to get them to understand that you know, he's he's not here as judge at the moment. At yeah. this moment, he's here as a suffering servant. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. That's all. It's all good. It's, it's a humbling and really just striking, striking verse, striking passage. Uh, let's let's wrap up by looking here at the end of uh, chapter ten, with Jesus heals the blind man. Bartimaeus and another clear contrast that Mark is setting up um, between Bartimaeus and then James and John, because uh, Jesus asked them both the same question. What do you want me to do for you? Um, But the requests that each make are very, very different. And by the way, one thing that I think stood out to me is um, this might be, I think, the only person healed in the synoptic gospels that gets a name can you guys think of another person who gets healed that gets a name afterwards no that that gets that is named like so bartimus is named here as and then he gets healed whereas and is there any other situation where you know the woman with the hemorrhage or you know the centurion and the and the daughter or like is there any other example where they get a name who's your favorite character in this vid vid series that you're watching jesus vid. mary <laughs> yeah 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 that'd be you know that'd be a pretty good one <laughs> yeah but she but she has a much more prominent role i mean all these i'm talking about is kind of these one-off you know stories does anyone else get a name i think bartimaeus it's, it's, might be it's rare yeah um, might be the only one malchus, which i don't know if there's any significance to that malchus yeah Where, which, which one is that chopping off the ear um, john's gospel i think there's yeah. some others if we went through yeah but yeah but for, but for the most part i, th- I think you're onto something here, Ben. I mean, Jairus's daughter is the daughter. She doesn't right. have a name. That the woman who's bent over with the hemorrhage of blood, uh, the widow's son at, at Nain, who's yeah. raised from the dead. It, yeah. At least there's in Mark. Still, there's a lot of those. <laughs> yeah. 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 Anyways, um, so I don't know if there's any significance to that, but it stood out to me this time. Uh, so anyways, back to the, the main question. What's the difference in the responses between, you know, James and John and, um, Bartimaeus here. What are they? What are they asking for? Becca, what do you think? Well, James and John want the spotlight, um, yeah. and Bartimaeus wants mercy and healing. And so, like the goal of James and John was more of to get to sit with and be in that position of power, kind of. Um, and then Bartimaeus wants to. He's going to come and follow instead mm-hmm. and walk with. Um, if we yeah. if we look at this in the lens of that. Ben has been relentlessly pointing out of Inclusio and Mark Mark and Sandwich. Um, and Michael Card makes a big, he thinks this is the key passage of the whole book of Mark. Hmm. And it's because he, he throws off his cloak. And, and, and it's just one of these wonderful things, like the, the woman left her water jar. The, one of the only possessions that he even owns is his cloak. But he's so excited to see Jesus mm-hmm. that he's coming like the kid unlike the rich young ruler, unlike the disciples. And what do you want me to do? I just want to, be, I want my sight. And yeah. it's this picture of spiritual sight mm-hmm. that he's been showing in this whole chapter that if these back and forth inclusio idea of the rich young ruler doesn't get it, he can't get rid of his cloak. He's got to hold on to all of his stuff. And the disciples want glory. And all this guy wants is just my sight. Yeah. And God is pleased to give him the sight. Yeah, you have this great, this is a very tight 
passage of showing this theme of going from outsider to insider. Because again, with this inclusio idea, the passage begins with he was by the road and the passage ends with him on the road mm. with Jesus, right? So it begins with he's by the road and then he's on the road um, with, with Jesus. And so he just, in this very short passage, this blind man goes from outsider to insider um, following following Jesus, which I think has real you know, implications for us as disciples, right? That <laughs> to, being a disciple means on the road with Jesus. Even, you know, in this case, he's on the road to be crucified, right? He's heading to mm. his death and it means following him, you know, wherever he takes us. Anyone I, have any I last thoughts that on that? Before, or, but that's really powerful yeah. that verse 46 says he's sitting by the roadside. So he's sitting, he's, he's out of the game. And the end of the story is he followed him on the way mm-hmm. that's really that's, it's, and in the greek it's the same it's uh odos right or hodos it's yeah. the same the way or the road mm-hmm. each each time so wow. same word i hadn't here. seen that yeah yeah anyone have any last thoughts here on mark chapter 10 and maybe what this teaches us about following jesus as as a disciple I just thought of this, yeah. <laughs> and it's probably not relevant, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, the early church wasn't called the early church. It was called the way. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm wondering mm. if there's a connection that mm. Mark is make, making here to say, mm. uh, not only is he on the physical path to get to mm. Jerusalem, yeah. but he's actually becoming a follower of Jesus and becoming a part of the way. Yeah. I think so. I I would, yeah. I That's probably a strong connection there. Um, well, this is a great chapter and just another man, just, I'm really enjoying just, I feel like in preparation and in these discussions that we've been doing every week, I feel like I'm with Jesus more, right? I'm getting closer to him in this study of Mark and I'm really just seeing this theme of with Jesus, you know, being a disciple, perhaps this might just be my new simple definition of what, what, what does it mean to be a disciple? I've kind of joked that everybody has their own definition of discipleship, right? You read every church growth book or whatever, disciple, and everyone has their own fancy definition. And it's like, <laughs> can we just all come up with a definition we agree? And I just think with Jesus seems to be what Mark is getting at. It's, it's being with Jesus. And this has been really helpful for me, and I hope it has been for you all here. And then for those of you who are listening, I hope this has increased your own understanding of being with Jesus. So we're going to stop here and then we're actually going to take a short break and we are going to record Mark chapter 11 right after this. And so we hope that you enjoyed this episode and I hope that you will tune in for us, uh, tune in with us next time for Mark chapter 11. Thanks everybody.